Christianity. Christianity, over the 2,000 or so years it's existed, has had a singular struggle. Like if you study church history, it will become apparent that the church has always struggled with exactly how to relate to contemporary culture. There have always been several different strategies, different approaches, questions that arise when we're trying to figure out how to engage the culture around us. Some have believed that the church should stand against culture. And the purpose of this particular mindset is that we're to be distinct from the world around us. And as a result, Christians will burn CDs. We will picket abortion clinics. We will rail against gay marriage. We will take a stand against the things that we see within our culture that we deem to be destructive. And we'll even have a biblical basis for it. First John chapter 2, verse 15, we read that, uh, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. And so there have been times in church history that the overarching question, the stand, we should stand against culture. Well, there's other times where we believe that maybe the church should, should operate within culture. You know, that aren't we called to transform the world? I mean, shouldn't Christians embrace culture in order to build bridges, kind of work from within the system to bring about effective change in our society? I mean, Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, you are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? It is then good for nothing but thrown out, trampled underfoot by men. Be salt, be light, you're the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do they light a lamp but put it under a basket, but on a lampstand. And it gives light to all those who are in the house, so let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. So some think that, well, maybe we should stand against culture. There have been times that maybe we should operate within culture. There have other been other instances where there have been questions and an idea that, well, the church should isolate from culture. You know, we're called to, to be purified, holy, sanct apart, set apart from the world. As a result, Christians sometimes, in a sense to isolate, we, well, we'll build our own schools. We'll found and create our own recreational leagues. You know, heaven forbid our kids play soccer with those heathens. In addition to that, you know, well, we don't want to wear clothing that looks like the world, so we just do kind of the knockoff variety. And instead of Sprite, it says spirit in like a really creative way. Like, well, we'll isolate. We'll develop our own brand of music, our own brand of movies, our own entertainment. I mean, it's true, right? Second Timothy 3, verses 1 through 5, that in the last days, perilous times will come, for men will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parent, parents, unthankful, unholy, unloving, unforgiving, slanderers, without self-control, brutal, despisers of good, traitors, headstrong, haughty, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying its power. And I mean, Paul said, and of such people, turn away, get away from. So sometimes we, we want to take a stand against culture, but then there have been other times that we want to operate within culture. But then there's like this third option, well, we should isolate from culture. And each time we've had biblical justifications and reasonings. In 1951, as America was coming off of one of the bloodiest 50-year periods in human history, Richard Niebuhr 
widely considered to be one of the most important Christian theological ethicists of the 21st century, 20th century, he set out in a book to address this particular conundrum, the, the church and culture issue in a book, a famous book called Christ and Culture. Niebuhr postulates that over history, there have been five approaches to culture. First, Niebuhr decides, uh, describes, defines the first as Christ against culture. I'm going to run through these quickly. But he states that there was a belief that culture has been so irreparably corrupted by sin that Christians must withdraw from, oppose, and avoid culture. In essence, the church, to remain holy, to remain sanctified, has to separate. And various movements would include uh, aesthetic communities, the monks who separated, the mystics, certain fundamentalists today. The second theory was Christ of culture. So Christ against culture, Christ of culture, which was the belief that the church should embrace culture regardless of differences. Since Jesus' overarching plan is the redemption of the world, both people and institutions, cultural expressions, they believe, should be accepted without criticism and celebrated by the church. In essence, Christian truth should evolve to remain relevant to cultural practices. The Gnostics held to this view. More recently, liberal Protestantism, feminist theologies. Most notable, a man by the name of Rob Bell held to this particular belief. Thirdly, there was the Christ above culture perspective, which was the belief that cultural expressions are basically good but need to be augmented or perfected by Christian revelation, the work of the church. Instead of the church conforming to culture, like the Christ of culture perspective would do, culture should instead conform to the church. Thomas Aquinas was a big proponent of this, it's most seen today through the Roman Catholic perspective. Fourth, there is the Christ in culture and paradox, which is the belief that culture inherently began as something good, but has since been tainted by sin. As a result, there will always be a fundamental and inescapable tension that exists between the church and culture. Christians will always live in this paradox where there's some things about culture we should embrace while there's other aspects of culture we should reject. Proponents of this perspective was Augustine, in, in part, Martin Luther, Soren Kierkegaard. The final position that Niebuhr states is the Christ is Christ the transformer of culture perspective. This belief also recognizes that human culture is inherently good before it was corrupted by sin, and yet instead of living in a state of constant tension, proponents of this view believe that since Christ is actively redeeming the creation, that the church should be active in redeeming or transforming culture into what God would desire. Augustine, like I said, he was kind of in between. He had his city of God. John Calvin had Geneva. John Wesley had England. Jonathan Edwards had America. Today, most modern reformers believe that it is Christ, the transformer of culture, so we should be in the midst of, of the world, hoping to see America become more into the image of some greater kingdom to come. Now, it's easy to see the pros and cons of all five perspectives, and yet, you know, there's something that Niebuhr doesn't do. He never 
addresses the topic of culture and Christianity and the church's role in, in both by looking at the blueprint for the church. And that is the book of Acts. The church in the book of Acts and how the church handled culture, I think is far more of a um, authority versus, I don't know, an ethicist that died years ago. We are in verse 19 of chapter 11, and we're gonna see here how the church handles culture. Now, those who were scattered after the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, preaching the word to no one but the Jews only. But some of them were men from Cyprus and Cyrene, who, when they had come to Antioch, spoke to the Hellenists, preaching the Lord Jesus. And we're told that the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number believed and turned to the Lord. Now, in these verses, Luke, who is our author, the author of Acts is Luke, he explains how quickly this paradigm shift that occurred in Acts chapter 10, when the gospel goes from the Jew to the Gentile, Peter's faithfulness to take the gospel to the household of Cornelius, how quickly this paradigm shift began to practically and fundamentally change the way the church functioned. Like that, overnight, things changed radically. You see, for the last 10 years, while the Jews, were told, who were scattered after the persecution that arose over Stephen, had traveled into Gentile areas, cities, like Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, Luke is clear that what was the strategy? What was the approach? Their ministry was to the Jew only. So they go into Gentile communities, but they're only bringing the gospel to the Jews that remained in those areas. In many ways, you could say that during the first decade of the church, they had adopted the Christ against culture perspective. Consistent with their Jewish heritage, the church in many ways isolated. Isolated from the Roman Gentile world. They wanted nothing to do with Gentiles, nothing to do with Greeks, nothing to do with Romans, nothing to do with the Hellenists. The church remained isolated to just Jewish communities. And yet, at this point, now that the gospel has officially leaped from the Jew to the Gentile, this isolationalist perspective was no longer justifiable. Following Peter's lead, Luke says that men from Cyprus and Cyrene, presumably Jewish men who were more accustomed to Hellenistic culture, they begin to do what? We see it there. They preached the Lord Jesus. Targeting whom? Not the Jew, but instead the Gentile. You see, contrary to the Christ of culture perspective, how did this church seek to engage foreign culture? Did they water down the gospel? Did they water down truth to make it seem more appealing? Did they somehow decide to blend the gospel with pagan ideals to make it more palatable? No. We see in this instance that what did they do to reach the Gentile? What did they do to reach the Hellenist, the Greek? Simple. They preached Jesus. I love it. And the result, look at it. We're told that the hand of the Lord, literally the power or the might of the Lord, was with them, honored it, worked amidst it. And we're told a great number believed of Gentiles. 
and turn to the Lord. Now, don't miss this subtle detail. We're told that they preached the Lord Jesus. A great many believed, but what did they do? They turned to the Lord. The the idea behind this word turned indicates a, a departure from something to something. Now, we know what they turned to, right? We're told, the Lord Jesus. What are they turning from? They're turning from their culture. They're turning from the typical way of life. They're turning from the status quo. They're turning from the gods of this age to follow Jesus. They turn from something to another, which is interesting because this detail contrasts this third Christ above culture viewpoint. What we find described in these verses wasn't that Christ was now added to the culture, but it was Christ instead of the culture. Something began to trump all else. And that was this good news of Jesus. And how radical, right? Jews evangelizing willingly, openly, Gentiles. I mean, can we say in some regard that maybe Peter, and I gotta be careful here, but that Peter wasn't exactly fully, um, fully willing. I mean, it took a lot to get Peter to like go to the house of Cornelius and go in. Like it took... It took him receiving a vision from heaven after some hunger pains. It took that vision coming three different times. It took the Holy Spirit saying, there's some men about to show up. That's the sign you should go with them. As soon as that's done, knock, knock, knock. Like it took the Cornelius recounting how God had worked on him. Like Peter went along. But like in some regard, He was coerced, prodded along a bit. But in this instance, nothing of the such, right? In this instance, what's happening? There are Jews that go to Antioch for one reason and one reason alone, to preach the gospel to Gentiles. Jews now willingly, without being prodded, being faithful to this new vision, this new paradigm shift. It's been said that if Caesarea had been ground zero for this new way of thinking, the city of Antioch would prove to be the perfect place for the gospel to begin its infectious spread across the globe. Indeed, it is estimated that by 312 AD, one in 10 people in the Roman world called themselves Christians. In 300, 250 years, the spread of the gospel, it's, it's, it's unrivaled. Now, the city of Antioch, it's the perfect place. It's known as Syrian Antioch, or Antioch the Great in regards to history. The city itself was located in the southernmost portion of present-day Turkey. The city was some 300 miles north of Jerusalem, rested about 20 miles inland from the Mediterranean Sea. The population of Antioch, they estimated, was about half a million people, It was considered to be the third largest city in the world at this time, only behind Rome and Alexandria. In many ways, historians reference Antioch as being Eastern Rome, kind of the hub for that half of the empire. It was a strategic, important city. Now, not only would this be the first place where Hellenists were targeted for evangelism, but this city would earn the historical title as being the cradle of Christianity by what begins here in these verses. 
Well, we're told that news, verse 22, of these things came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem. And they sent out Barnabas to go as far as Antioch. And when he had come, when he had seen the grace of God, he was glad. And he encouraged them all that with purpose of heart, they should continue with the Lord. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit of faith. And a great many people were added to the Lord. Now, upon hearing news of the work that was happening outside of the regions of Judea and Samaria, the apostles, like they had done in Samaria, they send an apostle. They send Barnabas, their representative, to this area to kind of check things out. He's kind of quality control. He wants to make sure that what they're hearing is actually what's taking place. And we're told that when he arrives in Antioch, Barnabas, who we've been introduced to already, Acts 4, Acts 9, was glad. So he gets there. He gets to this city. He's making his his journey. He's making his path. He's visiting all of these churches that are popping up in Gentile communities. He gets to Antioch. He sees what's happening, and his heart bubbles up from within. We're told he's glad when he had seen the grace of God. Now, no doubt, the grace of God is a reference to Um, this manifestation of salvation working in their lives. It's interesting. Imagine, he saw grace. He saw grace, and it stirred his heart. I think it can also be a reference to the very fact that Gentiles are Christians, that this phrase, that he went, he was glad for when he saw the grace of God, that the Gentiles coming in to the fold, actually being Christians, was something to stir him, that the grace of God could even have been a reference to the existence of, of Gentile believers, but don't miss what Barnabas does. He gets there, he's pumped up, he's evaluating what's happening, and we're told that he encouraged them. Now, we're gonna break this down a little bit. He encouraged them how? That with purpose of heart, this word purpose is prothesis in the Greek. It means a setting forth of a thing. So he tells them, he encourages them to set their heart to establish their purpose, to root themselves, that they should do what? Continue, or prosmino, meaning to hold fast, or to cleave, or to tarry with the Lord. Like Barnabas, he gets there, he sees this young church of young believers, and his one bit of encouragement is, guys, here's my advice. Hold fast to the Lord. Hold fast, determine within yourself that no matter what else happens, that you are going to cleave to Jesus, that you will tarry with him. And isn't this, in in essence, the key to all of our experiences with Christ? That, that That the key, the key component to a successful Christian experience is that you determine, you make a decision to follow Jesus that no matter what happens or what obstacles thrown your way or what detour that path may bring, you will not be deterred, that there's a determination. We talk a lot about faith, and it's true. The entire Christian experience is based in faith, but we don't discuss enough our role or what should be produced from faith. Like if Jesus has done so much for us, not of me, of him, a gift of God, then what should that do in my heart? That should produce a resolve. That no matter what happens, I'm following him because, well, he deserves it. And why wouldn't I? 
In John chapter 15, Jesus would exhort his disciples. He said, abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you. Unless you abide in me, I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit, for without me you can do nothing. And how do we abide in Jesus? In the book of Revelation, Jesus gives us a name for himself. He calls himself the word of God. In John chapter 1, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And then like 17 verses later, we're told uh, that in the beginning was the word, the word was with God, the word was God. And then 17 verses, the word became flesh and dwelt among us, that being the person of Jesus. If you want to abide in Jesus, you abide right here. You abide in his word. And as you're abiding in his word, his word is abiding in you and it's sinking roots down deep. And you're not deterred from this book. It's why we spend so much time in study of God's word here at Calvary 316. Because without God's word, there is no Christian experience. Without God's word, we're nothing but flounderers, failures. We're to walk in the spirit, to not fulfill the lust of the flesh. So Barnabas brings this great message of encouragement. The new church in Antioch, which began with a great number of believers, Believers under the leadership now of Barnabas in this encouraging word experiences another incredible wave of growth. As we're told, a great many people were added to the Lord. Then Barnabas, verse 25, departed from Tarsus to seek Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. So it was that for a whole year they assembled with the church and they taught a great many people. And the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. Then Barnabas departed for Tarsus. You know, it's, it's, it's kind of interesting that while Luke has already admitted that Barnabas was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, even Barnabas, faced with this growing church and the growing needs of this church, experienced well, a bit of limitation. Like Barnabas was a good guy, but he recognized that the needs of this church now eclipse what he could actually do with it, that he was limited. Barnabas knew that in order for this church to remain healthy, he would need help. It had outgrown his ability to remain effective. And so we're told that he goes to Tarsus. And what does he do? He goes to Tarsus with the specific intention to seek Saul. This word seek is interesting. In the Greek, the word means to search thoroughly. Like it presents the idea that here's Barnabas. This church is growing. The needs are growing. He's feeling like he's stretched thin. He's feeling like he's not fully effective. He's feeling like every Sunday, I can't do this anymore. Like, I really need some help here. And he's kind of going through this evaluation method. Well, what? Saul, Tarsus. Boom, he goes. He has no idea where Saul is. That, that's what this word to seek means. He knows 10 years before that Saul's in this town. He has no idea where his address is. It literally means he goes to Tarsus and he hunts Saul down. I love it. Barnabas was determined to find Saul. Now, that leads us to an interesting thought, or at least a question in the way my brain works. Why would Barnabas want Saul? 
and not someone from Jerusalem. Now, now we're, this whole passage gets colored a little bit because, well, we know Saul becomes Paul and writes a whole bunch of the New Testament. Like, like we know what happens moving forward, but you're in the moment, you're Barnabas. No one's heard from Saul in 10 years. Like he's off the radar. He's not even a ping out there. He's not in church leadership. He's not pastoring a church. He's not doing anything of note. And so you're Barnabas and you've got this church growing, this Gentile church that's growing. You're stretched thin, you need help. Why would he think to go get Saul as opposed to just sending down for another apostle or someone from Jerusalem? They had sent him in the first place. I think there's two potential answers to this. If you recall back in Acts chapter nine, following Saul's conversion, he comes from Damascus down to Jerusalem. No one wants anything to do with Saul, right? Who had been the biggest persecutor of the church. Everyone keeps him at an arm's length, a distance. No one wants to fellowship. They think it could all be a scam, except one man, right? The encourager, Barnabas. Puts his arm around Saul, hears his story, and then vouches for Saul. His character brings him to the apostles. The story's history. At some point in time, Barnabas recognized some potential in Saul, right? And so seeing this need that was growing in the church of Antioch, already having a heart for this man who was banished to Tarsus, he's thinking, you know, I remember a guy who has just the specific gifts and talents and abilities that would complement mine. I know a guy that would be perfect. I also think that the urgency of the situation might have had something to do with it as well. Like 300 miles is the distance between Antioch and Jerusalem. And you're facing this crisis, right? Something needs to happen now, immediately. Like for Barnabas to leave to go to Jerusalem, I mean, the journey itself there and back, then can, like it could take way too long. Like it could be that the reason that Barnabas goes and gets Saul is because Tarsus was just a day's journey. Like that Barnabas goes and gets Saul for no other reason than he's kind of like the last resort. That he like jots out a list of like 30 people and he's like, man, I'll never be able to get to all these people in time. And then there's Saul at the bottom. And he's like, well, all right, here we go. Not sure what's gonna happen. So he goes and he gets Saul and he brings him back, which I kind of like. Like imagine this experience for Saul. Like when out of the blue, Barnabas shows up on his doorstep, right? And out of the blue, Barnabas is like, hey, the Lord has need of you. There's this church, God's doing this thing, yeah. And you've been out of the loop. Peter took the gospel to the Gentiles. Like it's starting to spread throughout the world. Dude, you need to come and be a part of this. You've been making tents for way too long. It's time to get back into the game. Like, can you imagine Saul's heart in this moment? Because we know he had a heart for ministry, right? Immediately following salvation. In Damascus, he goes and he starts preaching the gospel, right? And they try to kill him for it. So he spends three years in Arabia. He comes back, goes to Jerusalem, gets accepted by the church. What does he do? He immediately goes into the synagogues. He starts preaching the gospel. They want to kill him. So the apostles are like, dude, you just, you need to go away. So he has a heart for ministry, a heart to preach, but he's been banished for 10 years and he submitted to that. He didn't fight against it. He went. And yet now, God was calling him back. If you're on the sideline, whether it's something you did 
or maybe this is that particular season, I hope you know that there will come a day that God is not done, that he will call you back into the game. And that's what we see with Saul. And so they go back to Antioch, and and we're told that for a whole year, they assembled with the church and they taught the people. The core function of a church is teaching the people and Barnabas and Saul. Barnabas and Saul were a dynamic duo. Barnabas was the encourager, Saul was a teacher. Barnabas was people-driven, Saul was task-oriented. The church in Antioch between these two men had a diversity of gifts, a diversity of personality. They had a different way of viewing things. And the result, a diversity of gifts meant meeting a diversity of needs. This church was healthy as a result of it. And we're told that the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. This word Christian is interesting. For it is the Latin construction of Christos, Christ, and this suffix, I-A-N. This suffix literally means to be of the party of. Like this is how it would work if you were a citizen of a particular city in the ancient world. If you lived in Philippi, you were known as a Philippian. This suffix, I-A-N, being added to the name of the particular city. I'm of this particular city. If you were from Corinth, you were known as a Corinthian. If you were from Atlanta, you were known as an Atlian. Okay, I embellished a little bit. It's an E, not an A, but you know what I mean. As a matter of fact, in Roman military structure, it was not abnormal for you to refer to yourself using this suffix, connecting it to the name of your general. Like if your general was Alexander, I'm an Alexandrian. So it it connects these two ideas. It connects the person with the first word. Now, it seems as though that these these Gentile believers in Antioch were so serious about following Jesus that this term was actually developed as as a form of mockery. Up until this point, Christians were Jewish, so they were just referred to as being of the way, a subsect of Judaism. It's just a different way. But these Gentile believers, that would not be applicable, so a whole whole new term was coined, thus this idea of Christian. Basically, in calling these believers Christians, they were saying that these people were little Christs, or I like Jesus people. You're Jesus people. You're of the party of Jesus. And you know, it was a term of mockery, but could you have asked for a better compliment? Like to the point that it was a term of mockery and the church is like, hey, did you see what they were calling us? Like, that's awesome. Like it became a badge of honor. Now don't overlook these three words. First called Christians. Like, understand, for the believers in Antioch, this term Christian was their primary identifier. They were known as being Jesus' people before they were known as being anything else. Jesus was changing their lives, and people were taking note. It wasn't as though that they were known as, well, you're a Democrat, or you're a Republican, and you're a Christian. Like, they were known for their love of Jesus above and beyond everything. 
Can I ask this morning, what is your primary identifier? Like, what is your fundamental identity? Are you a programmer or are you first a Christian programmer? It's a distance. What are you first called? Are you an engineer or are you first a Christian who does engineering work? Are you a public high school teacher or are you a Christian who teaches public high school? Are you a mom or a dad or are you first a Christian mother or father? Are you a student or are you first a Christian who studies? You see, you need to understand that your fundamental identity, like whatever this identifier is, will be the primary driver of where you find your purpose and where you uh, get the source of satisfaction. If you're an engineer, but you're a Christian, then being an engineer is your self-worth. It's your self-identity. You're successful or you're not is based upon how good at that you are or aren't. I'm a musician. If that's my primary identifier versus being a Christian, then my entire self-worth and evaluation method starts there versus something bigger than that or something greater than that, something based in grace and not performance. Lecrae, who's a very popular uh, rap artist who's a Christian, and I say that very particularly. One of his earlier albums called Identity, he has this, uh, uh, called Rebel, he has this song called Identity. Uh, guys, could you play a clip real quick? There's just a section of it. In case you missed it, let me read that last little stanza, which is important. Here's the last stanza. And you might hate rap or not. It doesn't matter. It's the words. Like, that's what we're going with. The final stanza says this. I'm not the job I work. You can't define my worth by nothing on God's green earth because my identity is found in Christ, is found in Christ. You see, this leads us to the core dynamic that's often lost when we have this conversation about Christianity and Christianity's role in contemporary culture. You see, the fundamental problem with Richard Niebuhr's approach, specifically the remaining two positions, Christ and culture and paradox, and Christ the transformer of, of culture, is that the conversation concerning Christianity, the church, and culture, it totally misses the point. It, as a matter of fact, it obsesses over the wrong thing. Culture. Culture is actually nothing more than a simple reflection of the people who make up society. Like culture in and of itself is neither good 
nor is it bad. Culture, in many ways, is amoral. Like if we say that's a wicked culture, what are we referring to? We're referring to the people who make up that particular culture. For example, Miley Cyrus, Lady Gaga, Katy Perry are not corrupting society by flaunting sex and promoting lewd behavior through their songs. Instead, Miley Cyrus, Lady Gaga, and Katy Perry are doing nothing more than reflecting a corrupt society that happens to be lewd and sexually promiscuous. If you want to know what society looks like, those three women are a good representation of a lot of it. It's all about marketing. If that didn't appeal to anyone, then they wouldn't be selling records. Here's another another point. Why is gay marriage now legal in 32 states? Is it because liberal judges are overriding the will of the American people? If I hear Fox News say that one more time, I'm going to kill myself. Because that's not actually it. According to Pew Research, in 2001, 57% of Americans opposed same-sex marriage. Today, 52% of Americans support gay marriage. A majority of Americans support same-sex marriage. That's a 17-point swing in 14 years. What we see happening, 32 states embracing, it's not rejecting the will of the people, it's a reflection of a change in our own perspective as a society. How does a self-proclaimed show about absolutely nothing become such a cultural phenomenon that it's nominated for a total of 68 Emmys over a nine-season run? Yeah, I'm referring to Seinfeld. And I felt it was relevant to put Larry David in there because, well, you need to know something of the show. Think about it. How does a show where every single episode lacks any type of moral, The show never has a serious moment, never has a special episode aimed at dealing with an important issue of substance, never once actually seeks to teach its audience anything of value. It's true. End up being so popular that they grossed $200 million for every season. And there was nine of them. That's why Jerry Seinfeld is as rich as he is. Why is this the case? Well, Seinfeld's brilliance was that it was able to tap into a philosophical outlook that was gaining steam throughout the 90s. It's not postmodernism. It's actually what postmodernism produces, a philosophy known as nihilism, the belief that life is completely meaningless. Like Seinfeld. Seinfeld resonated in our culture in a very profound way to the point that 76 million people tuned in to watch the series finale. 76 million people. Why? Because our own lives are often devoid of meaning. Charles A. Browning writes this, Seinfeld reflected the realities of the average American person in the 90s. As a few people have pointed out, the key flaw in the popular notions of postmodern relativism is that the only thing that can be tolerated, that can't be tolerated, is, is intolerance. If everything is true, then nothing is. Seinfeld was an important show because it was the first sitcom to successfully break away from a form of idealism. And because Seinfeld came about in the midst of a paradigm where other TV shows 
uh, protagonists were seen as heroes to be imitated, the show gave a voice to a growing indifference in the current culture. He concludes, the show about nothing gave rise to a world about nothing, which is what Seinfeld was about entirely. Sadly, the church's obsession with changing culture misses the point entirely. Culture is not the problem that faces the church. People are. Like seeking to change a culture without first seeking to affect change in the people who make up culture is completely pointless. It's insane, actually. It's interesting to think. But Jesus... You know, Jesus undoubtedly challenged the religious establishments of his day. But do you know Jesus never once addressed his culture? It's kind of interesting to think about. As a matter of fact, we have no record of Jesus preaching against the social ailments of the day, like slavery or the sexual debauchery of Rome or the economic plight of minorities within the empire or the oppressive governmental system that ruled the day. Instead, what did Jesus focus on? He focused his entire attention, not on culture. He could care less, but instead on changing, transforming the lives of people. And this was a methodology adopted by the early church. By the way, adopted by this church. Consider this. How did the first century church end up making such a radical impact on the culture around them? How did they do it? To the point that in 300 years, the society embraces Christianity. How did it happen? The answer, one transformed life at a time. That's how it took place. Social critic Herbert Schlossberg, he rightfully said, the salt of people changed by the salt of the gospel must change the world. I say amen. In conclusion, recognizing that our primary role is to reach people with the gospel of Jesus. We are still left with just that overarching question, right? Like, how should we interact with contemporary culture? I have just three thoughts we're going to close with. First, while we play an important role in seeing people transformed by the gospel, Scripture never mandates the church to play any role in the redemption of cultural institutions. America can come and go. doesn't matter in the grand scheme of things because the redeemer of institutions is Jesus and he alone. And the Bible says that that will only happen when he comes and establishes his kingdom and his second coming. Secondly, while we're called to remain pure and undefiled as people, we are. Holiness. Christians should never isolate from the people that we've been called to reach. You see, that's the misconception. When we want to isolate from culture, we're isolating from the people and culture. Ironically, those are the very people we're supposed to be reaching, that we're supposed to be shining a light and being salt. I like this. A lighthouse is most effective when it's been constructed at a point where it's surrounded more by the sea than the land. That's how the church should be. Thirdly, while we are more effective reaching people by engaging culture and remaining socially relevant, I mean, I just referenced my... Miley Cyrus, Lady Gaga, Seinfeld. Might not be totally relevant with Seinfeld, but you get the point. Like, we should remain relevant. But Christians should never become so relevant we're no longer distinct. 
Now, we referenced this verse earlier, but in Matthew 5, Jesus said, you are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its flavor, how should it be seasoned? It's good for nothing, but to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. This is an interesting uh, statement by Jesus because we know that salt, or NACL, the com- compounds, fundamentally can't lose its flavors. Like, salt cannot lose its flavor. Like, the very nature of the compound is what makes it salty. Except for one thing. You see, the only way for salt to become flavorless, to be good for nothing, is when the chemical compound, NACL, dissolves and then recrystallizes with other elements. This means that in order for Christians to remain the salt of the earth, we must guard against moral and doctrinal compromise. Because if we do, we're no longer salt. And we're good for nothing. Those are Jesus' words. Let's bring it home before we get out of here. How are you to engage in culture? Are you engaging in culture? More specifically, are you being a light to the world around you? Are you being a witness of Jesus? Are you first known as a Christian above all else? So Father, with that heavy word, we just allow these things to settle into our hearts.